welcome back to the podcast, the Coaches Rising podcast. This is episode number 69 and I'm Joel and I hope this finds you well, wherever you are. I'm just kind of imagining you driving down the motorway to work or you're walking across a field and you've got your headphones on and I don't know, I just really like that thought experiment of like this, you could be anywhere on the planet right now listening to this, There's something quite incredible about that. I hope you're well. And in today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Dave Burns and I really enjoyed this conversation. Dave, somebody recommended him to me and I followed my hunch when I heard his name and I found his website and I was like, oh, this is super fascinating, even though there's not really that like tons on there. And I'm really glad that I followed that. Um, we're going to talk about Dave's coaching in this conversation and we'll talk about the deep commitment that Dave creates between him and his clients towards the transformative work. And Dave's going to talk about how it behooves him and perhaps others to, if people are really stepping into deep transformation, to get really clear on that before people say yes. Yeah. And then he'll talk about, well, you know, what do people, what kind of work do people step into with him and how it's like he's working in very many different domains of their lives and creating a kind of, um, you know, practice, a transformational practice in many different domains of their lives at once. And he brings in other coaches to work with them in areas where they need speciality. And so that's fascinating to me. Uh, he's also going to talk about the mental models that he, sorry, the, the, the kind of lenses that he looks through uh, or uses with his clients, like, for example, the interpersonal somatic attunement kind of lens uh you know his capacity to attune to his clients on a very granular level to sense them and what's emerging in them we'll talk about the mental lens you know how does he work with his own thinking and the thinking of his clients and what is the the influence of greek philosophy on that and we'll talk about the relationship between business meditation and coaching and so I, I think it's very rich it feels like we kind of uh we should have been talking for about six hours and we had less than one so i feel like we've got a part two coming up so i hope you enjoy it as usual i'll say if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create then uh, then you can do so by heading to coachesrising.com. Scroll down the page, you'll find a sign-up box. The other thing I would say is if you feel like it, I'd love it if you'd share this podcast. I just want as many coaches to know about it as possible. I really appreciate that. You know, just to take that moment to, to head to our website, coachesrising.com forward slash podcast on the individual page there, you'll find share buttons and I, I, it just helps to get the word out. So, that all being said, should we dive in? Here's the podcast with Dave Burns. 
Dave, it's really, um, really good to be with you today. And um, I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And it's funny because I feel like just in the way that you talked about what we could talk about now, I know, I know why, you know, I'm like, ah, and yet when I looked on your website, you know, it's quite minimal and, um, and, and it really, I found it really intriguing. So I'm just trusting that my intuition was right. And we're, we're going to have a cool conversation today. Hopefully. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. Beautiful. It's a sunny day in Northern California mm. and, and I have zero to complain about. Great. So actually, first, I'd just love to know a bit about the kind of coaching that you do, like the kind of people you work with and what kind of, um, we'll get deeper into the kind of um, the art of coaching, how you see that and the art of transformation. But yeah, what, what kind of coaching do you do? Yeah, really good question. It's, I'll say first off, pretty radically dependent on the specific coaching relationship. So I'm, I'm not a niche coach. I don't have kind of like one easily adjectivable type of coaching that I like to do. I'm, I'm a huge proponent of developing very, very highly customized coaching containers for unique individuals. So with that said, I can give you kind of some broad brushstroke themes that seem to cluster around the kinds of people who I have natural coaching chemistry with, but kind of at the heart, you know, the kind of coaching I do is like radically personalized and comprehensive coaching for unique individuals. Mm. What? Yeah. And that, that grabs me already. So like what, how, what's, how do you do that? Like what's the art of creating something radically personalized and then what does that bring? For, for me, it looks like a few different things. I mean, the obvious thing that it involves from the get go is an enormous amount of listening yeah. And kind of loving interrogation, like a fairly lengthy onboarding process to you know, figure out whether there is real potential and chemistry with a client. Uh, and then if there is, you know, that even lengthier process for actually constructing what it's going to look like to work together. Um, and then for me, honestly, uh, a big part of it is collaboration. Mm-hmm. So for most of my coaching relationships, I am not the only coach. For most of my coaching relationships, I subcontract out a number of different experts in their field to work with clients in specific areas. So I work with different nutritionists, personal trainers, um, trauma resolution experts, body workers, medicine facilitators, neurofeedback techs, um, depending on kind of the highest leverage points that it feels like a client could have pressed on to achieve the sort of transformation as possible. Mm. right beautiful yeah and 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 yet like and so um is there you said it's like highly customized highly personal and i'm just curious if there is like um like a philosophy behind that approach you know like do you see your clients going on of course everybody's journey is going to be super unique isn't it and personal to them and at the same time is is there is there some kind of you know meta journey that you see people making like a commonality around that Um, yeah 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 to some extent for sure you know like the 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 experience of self-actualization seems to have some common threads from person to person Mm. so i I can definitely describe some you know big arcs that tend to happen Um, you know the what i call the monastization of daily life the monasticization yeah. of daily life 
is something that for most people I work with ends up being extremely important. Like the systematic transformation of each different domain of daily life into a, a deliberate practice, a deliberate vehicle for, you could call it for some of them, it would, they would consider it to be spiritual practice, spiritual transformation. For others, they would consider it to be more of uh, like the development of skill or soul craft but basically like eradicating the barriers between different areas of life and turning each of them into a deliberate vehicle for whatever transformation is important to people is, is definitely one central theme. I seems to gravitate around the kinds of people I like working with. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I wrote that down um, from your website, like uh, the discipline of the monastic practitioner, the daily life approach to daily life with the discipline of a monastic pr- practitioner um and um i that that appeals to me too and so um could you say a bit more about that like um you know what's involved in doing that like do you find that um of course it's highly personalized but um you're inviting people into a very specific type of relationship there aren't you Mm -hmm. yeah 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 a couple of concrete things it involves i mean on, for one, it involves, for most people, uh, the development of systems and structures to be able to say, be present, be fully present with each distinct area of life. So this looks like calendaring systems and different kind of GTD-inspired project management systems for people, I think, are largely important to kind of free up the mental capacity to be able to start relating in a more monastic way the individual parts of life. So that kind of more traditionally executive coaching associated type of like what you call productivity work. I I do think of as sort of a foundation for monastization. Um, The beyond that, it looks like a few different things. One is um, the development of an understanding for the ways in which specific recurring relationships can be specific teaching or learning vehicles Mm. and then the development of deliberate practices within those relationships to make sure that they are the kind of teaching or learning vehicles that they have the potential to be. So this would be like developing different kinds of relational practices, communication practices, or meditative practices in, in relationships with one's colleagues, business partners, romantic partners, friends of different types, on a daily basis, it would be like setting up specific routines that one's engaging in and then having different types of meditative practices for those routines. So like I have you know, a client who um, for every lunch break has one specific type of moving meditation practice that they engage in. Uh, and whenever showering has a different type of moving meditation practice and it connects to and builds on their sitting meditation practice and acts as kind of like a vehicle through which the fruits of their sitting practice can flow into the rest of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, uh, I, well, first of all, like I actually got into using superhuman through your web, your email. Uh, so I just, just like, uh, and actually, um, cause I feel that call myself, you know, that sense of how, um, well, there is a sense of freeing up energy and time in for the pursuit of what's most important, but there's also a sense of like the art of living well, Mm. you know, of doing things well. And and what I hear you saying is like, there's a kind of, 
well, I wonder if there's like a um, decompartmentalization of life taking place, you know, whereby like all these different realms of life can become realms, uh, areas of uh, practice and service of something. And there's a kind of like multidisciplinary learning taking place by saying like, oh, if I do emailing well, um, how does that connect to my meditation practice on the mat or something like that? So I'm not quite sure if there's a question in what I'm saying there, but I just see where you take that. Yeah. It's very beautifully said. I love the way you articulated that. Yeah. Thanks. And I love Superhuman. It's an amazing email service. <laughs> Certainly. You know the you know the inbox zero experience? Have you gotten to inbox zero and Superhuman? Yeah. 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 The yeah. beautiful changing pictures of amazing right. landscapes. Yeah. Having little things like that be built into the architecture of the day is definitely something that makes me very happy. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah. I'm curious. So you, you run some different coaching programs. Is that right? Coach training programs? Yeah. I, let me say what I, what we do is we tend to create themes. So for example, embodied coaching, somatic coaching, and then we'll, um, and, and I have to give kudos to my business partner for this. He's really artfully um, skillful at putting together a, like a faculty. So I'm not primarily the, 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 the main teacher in any of those at all. Uh, we're kind of like behind the scenes, pulling people together. I do yeah. a bit of teaching, but yeah. Yeah. Amazing. What, yeah. Yeah. So with, I'm can I ask a couple of questions? Please. I'm curious on that front. So you mentioned somatic or embodied coaching. Are, yeah. are there any other kind of core themes or philosophies that you happen to be passionate about spreading in the coaching world? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think this is one of them that we just tapped into actually like a multidisciplinary approach to, uh, to change or to coaching or to living, you know, like um, uh, how um, art and music and, um, you know, poetry and novels and, and gardening and walking in nature and, and all that can be kind of woven together into a kind of, um, soul infused approach to to living and change you know mm. um, um i think that's something that inspires me um there are definitely others like um thinking working systemically um collective trauma work like um i'm very passionate myself about how can we refine ourselves as an instrument of perceptivity so that we can attune to our clients you know, in a very kind of granular way and, and kind of sense into their coherence as they talk about certain topics and what might be absent or what might be emerging within them as they're talking. So um, that's a, you know, that's a topic because I think the, the bar is being uh, raised all the time for what masterful coaching is. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, um, soul, coaching with soul, like transpersonal self or unique self and um uh yeah that, that's to name a few so amazing yeah. amazing I, I definitely share your passion with at least most of those <laughs> right right yeah yeah that's beautiful yeah i, I i'd love to know well you maybe you want to ask another question i i it brings please go ahead for me 
of like to know a bit about you like uh, i'm going to come back to your coaching but like you know what is inspiring you or what what's influencing you or what's your life about you know those mm-hmm. are three very different questions and that's kind of poor podcasting technique but i kind of like it i'm just going to see where you take it yeah, yeah. <laughs> good so uh i'll say a couple of things super important to me and the big part of my life one is marriage mm. for me yeah. personally is in you know in terms of vehicles that have an opportunity to be incredibly profound vehicles for transformation and learning that that one has proved to me to be the top of the list can you, certainly can you say how come like what 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 is yeah, it about I, marriage that's uh, maybe everybody listening kind of instantly, you know, can nod in recognition, but what is it for you about marriage? That's yeah. yeah it's a few different things. I mean, the, the act of getting married or getting engaged in the first place was a, a pretty big one. That's I, I hadn't really learned uh, commitment as a sort of energetic template in life prior to that happening. Yeah. And, and so it taught me the importance and the power of full, wholehearted, indefinite commitment Yeah, in a huge way that very much immediately began to kind of ripple out into other areas of life. Mm. Like, the, like an energetic, you said like there's a kind of energetic component to that. Yeah. I mean, the, the experience of being fully all in with no back doors and like a wholehearted, very explicit, very verbal commitment that's made in front of, you know, hundreds of people. All, and you promise in front of hundreds of people that you're going to do your best with this person forever until you die. It's really it's like <laughs> as committed as it gets, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's very understandable why people, including me, you know, shy away from that. A long period of time. I think being afraid of commit, being afraid of commitment is a very understandable thing. Um, and I had really, you know, I had attempted to slip out of commitment of every type up until I met my wife. And with her, for whatever reason, it happened to be very easy and natural to be fully right. committed. But then, like feeling what's possible on the other side of that, you know, feeling feeling the difference of the texture in daily life. When there's no escape hatch, you just will not permit any mental escape hatch. Like you have to figure out the thing. You have to make it beautiful no matter what is revolutionary for me and across the, you know, in my coaching and my business and my writing. Yeah. I could, I was going to say, like, I can imagine that that opens up ways of seeing or, or bringing, uh, being in your coaching. Yeah. In life. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent it's a commitment yeah when somebody signs up to work with you and with both them to you but you to them that's also a commitment serious commitment yeah Yeah. serious commitment i take those commitments super seriously i don't it definitely it heavily marriage heavily heavily influenced the way that i approach coaching one-on-one client relationships heavily but more than anything else you know more than any coach training i've done yeah right and um, I get the feeling from the way you talk about this highly customized, I want to come back to, to you and your life as well. But when you talk about this highly customized relationship you have with your clients, there is something about the commitment involved in that that's kind of potent in and of itself. Yeah, Like that's one thing I learned from Toku was like, 
you know, in enrolling clients, it's like, slow down, right? You know, at that moment when they're, you're going to maybe commit or not, it's like, don't rush through that. No, no. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's a potent transformational moment. So beautifully said. Yeah. Toku understands that particular moment very deeply, Mm. very, very deeply. Yeah. Do you, do you find for yourself that there's something transformational, even in the commitment that's, that's arises between you and your client? one of the most transformational things yeah one of the most important transformational moments the yeah the the mutual decision to work together is a huge thing particularly if i mean this is for transformational coaching like if if the aim of a transformational coaching relationship is to truly transform then saying yes to the coaching relationship is saying yes to true transformation, which means that all of the different internal egoic defenses and habitual types of resistance to transformation that have kept people bogged down and in kind of recurring loops their whole life, all of those will and should be 100% active and activated in the moment of decision about whether to work with a a real transformational coach. So it's a huge decision point. Even though it's not an indefinite relationship in the way that marriage is, even if it's like a committed container, if if you're going into it, decide like, I'm really going to do the thing this time, like all of these different recurring habits and patterns in me, I'm ready to like actually fully face head on now and and make these shifts internally and externally that i've always kind of secretly wanted to like if that's it then that that choice point is you know for sure without a doubt one of the most significant leaps of faith and kind of steps through a portal in people's lives has been my experience yeah and so I, I'd like, I think this is important, this point you're making now. It's like, I feel the call in the way you talk about this to, um, well, what would, what would I say? Like, um, make sure that moment counts, you know, make sure that moment um, means what I'm hearing when you say it. It's like, you don't just rush into, are we going to work together? Okay, great. You know, no, it's like, no, we really take the time to, to, to clarify, like, what are we saying yes to? And like, do we really want this? Like, is that something you would recommend to people? Well, you know, I'm not necessarily looking for you to offer advice to people, but um, I do think there are teachings inside what you're sharing. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. On a, on a personal level, it definitely feels mandatory to me for that to be a slow and extremely explicit and crystal clear process involving, like I, I'm not willing to get into a coaching relationship with anyone without talking about very overtly and then writing down very clearly a hundred percent of what's going to be involved and required on their part, for instance. Right. Right. Yeah. Both external and internal. Yeah. The kind of commitment to practice that's going to be required, the sort of internal things that they're going to have to directly be with face and sit through over and over the different, the different kinds of demons they'll likely have to wrestle with the not presenting all of those things and having real conversations about the head of time feels 
feels to me out of integrity going into a relationship. Like mm. it only feels right to me for be, people to be very, very clear about what they're getting into and what's really required for you know, non-cheap transformation. Mm. And so I, I heard you say, I think at the start that you actually take time. Yeah. And what I'm hearing is this, you really take the time, maybe several conversations or I don't know how many you have to establish this. Yeah, we have, have multiple conversations and mm -hmm. then you know, a written document detailing all of the things that are going to be required and expected throughout the relationship. And, and it's one that people have to sit with actively. I'm, I'm not a coach who likes just you know, inviting people onto a call of talking about goals and then getting a yes or no. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a serious commitment. There's, I, I don't work with a lot of one-on-one -on -one clients. And... Uh, and it feels, you know, I'm a firm believer that in order to give your gifts fully, it's a kind of moral imperative to find people who are capable of receiving them fully. Right. And, yeah. and so to, if I'm going to be committing to like, giving my all to a one-on-one -on -one client, which is, you know, my all is bringing in everyone I know who's best in their fields at these things. It's constructing programs. It's talking to them very regularly. It's, for a lot of them monitoring things, you know, throughout that there are certain clients who I look at their calendars every week. Um, I look at their habit tracking spreadsheets. I look at different behavioral tracking things. They have to write up practice journals. Like there's some heavily involved in clients' lives. I'm, I, I design and write up and constantly refine different practice regimens for them that they have to keep records of. It's like, if, if I'm going to be doing that with someone, they have to A, know how crazy intense that's going to be like be really willing to dive into that fully. Uh, and, and B, they have to, you know, they have to bring the kind of 100% no backdoor commitment to it that you would bring to, we'll say uh, a marriage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very powerful. And so I, I, I like I would love to try and tease out like once the people are in that working with you yeah then um, are there certain lenses that you're looking through to to, to to support them in their life I know you said like um, it's personalized I'm looking at, at like their calendars and their mm -hmm. daily life and I'm designing practices like if we step back from that, are there, is there certain things you're looking for as you, as you see that client in their life and what they've committed to um, that, that, that kind of guide you in, you know, um, creating the right practice or um, offering the right kind of feedback? Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. A number of lenses. You got to have the, the lenses to juggle, of course. <laughs> we, yeah. <laughs> of course. What, I'm just curious what they are. Like if you, if there's any, yeah, if you could name any or yeah. Yeah. Gladly. So like in terms of different attentional lenses that I bring to coaching relationships to help, you know, coach well and then guide well throughout the process. Um, there are a couple of foundational ones. One for me is, is somatic attention, which I think you've already alluded to. I don't know the details of the kind of somatic or embodied program um, that you've set up for coach training, but a, a lot of my own foundational training was in like very simple interpersonal somatic mindfulness practice like something like circling or something like that or um... uh, yeah not not circling actually yeah. I've, never, I've never been trained in circling right but yeah this is of a similar ilk yeah yeah um 
And so the, you know, the kind of simultaneous attention on one's own physical sensations as a kind of guiding star for intuition, as well as attention on another person's physical sensations through mirror neurons is like a foundational attentional layer that ends up being kind of like the, in terms of intuitive vehicles that I bring to coaching, that's, that's kind of like my main meditative practice. I, I, I love this one. The, the, um, so, I mean, I don't know exactly how you say it, but the, the way you describe it has been a practice we've given in some of our programs. Like, hmm. um, yeah, feeling me and then feeling you and then feeling what's the impact and, and what's the connect the quality of our relationship. Right. And um, what am I tuning into as I, as I tune into you and I hear you speak about what's happening for yourself. So, right. Yeah. Love that. Right. Yeah, that's that one's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. In addition, should we talk about some additional lenses? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in addition, in terms of on the um, on the mental side of things, in terms of like cognitively interacting with clients, and also like thinking about clients, the primary lenses that I work with are actually from the ancient Greek tradition. So like on the, on the cognitive front, I'm not, I'm not super, you know, I have some training in, but I've never immersed super deeply in the kind of EST lineage of, uh, you know, the Tony Robbins, I think being the biggest proponent of it now, but like that, that type of utilization of thought and like that way of using mind is not so much my, my central vehicle. Um, I think it has some usefulness, but mostly when it comes to like the entire thinking function, I'm all about ancient Greek philosophy, right. um, like practical ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, so mostly Xenophon, Socratic philosophy broadly, right. um, dialectics. And, uh, and so internally, if I'm mapping out or like thinking about a client and kind of like constructing mental models for them, then like the main training I utilize in that respect is, is classical Greek philosophy which is my main area of kind of like personal study in terms of 80% of what I read is ancient Greek philosophical texts. And just give me a sense of like what, what's at the heart of that. I mean, I know that's um, it's probably a really big field and it's nuanced and complex. And at the same time, like what, what's, how does it invite you to think that, that kind of philosophy? Yeah. Uh, I mean, people, people have very different views on this. So I'll present kind of my own central one. It invites you to think uh, a few different ways. It's, uh, it's at its heart dialectic, meaning it involves a kind of continuous back and forth refining process of splitting apart things that were assumed to be together and of joining together things that assumed to be a, were assumed to be apart. Right. So it looks like kind of actively looking for similarities in form or connection points between things that look like they're very, very disparate. It can be different areas of people's lives, different comments that people make that seem totally unrelated. Right. And then it looks like uh, kind of very precise splitting distinctions in accidental lumpings together. Right. Right. So that they fused something together and it's like, huh, that's interesting. Like, that, that those are mean the same thing to you in some way. Right. And that's creating a certain 
like reality in your life for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, what like what got my curiosity was like what um, the first part you said like it's like putting you know a dialectic of putting certain things together that we might not or look at looking for how they might fit together. What what does that bring to to someone or to to you when you're looking at your clients? Yeah, we're getting into. Uh, I love this topic. We're getting into a terrain where there's a real possibility of me getting super excessively painfully abstract right so i'll do my best to come up with some concrete examples that's great and i can play like the devil's advocate and be like huh what 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 is that you know so uh, excellent feel free to yeah yeah let's hang out there for a bit be abstract as well i love that you know wonderful i appreciate it's certainly a terrain that i love to play in um so when it comes to the the splitting side, the splitting function, there's really, you know, we could talk about this different ways, but I'll say for me, the most important part of what I consider to be Greek philosophical training is this kind of bicycle pedaling activity of allowing an insight to form basically like, opening up a vacuum for an insight to come together. And an insight coming together is always the joining together of two previous thoughts or forms that have never, have never together joined together in the past in your mind. That's what an insight is. So the practice of holding space for an insight to come together and then ruthlessly cutting apart that insight finding the false assumptions or false lumpings that exist within it and splitting it into, you could say it's, it's truth and it's accidental detritus. Right. What's that word mean? Detritus? uh, Possibly pronounced detritus. I've never known. Right. Um, right. But like (laughs) refuse. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So this act of like holding open for insight and then attacking the insight uh, back and forth between those, that's the kind of like pulse or lifeblood of, uh, of like Greek philosophical practice. And f- for me, like the reason why I've settled on it as sort of the foundational thing when it comes to the thinking function is it seems like the only way to, uh, the only way to fully honor the thinking function without falling into its traps. Like utilizing, uh, you know, mental models is very, very important. For example, um, if you can bucket a client into like a category, that's a very, very useful thing. That's an example of a joining activity where you, you join to, you make a mental connection between here's a template or form. We'll say this is like a, uh, you know, a highly praise driven client. That's a template in the mind. Right. And then here's this actual person. I'm going to put those together, but without being willing to also then like split those apart fully to hold at a distance that honors the reality and the uniqueness of a client um, without throwing away the usefulness of a mental model. Right. Without being able to split that, then you fall into you know, horrible cognitive biases that are very damaging to your art. 
and your practice. And so the kind of alternation between joining and splitting in that way, I see as kind of being the only possible solution on the most abstract level. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. So it's like, just checking, I've got that. It's like, yeah, I can actually have a mental model, a category for this that, that can allow me to make a distinction, an important distinction about this client or fit them into a certain place. But yeah, the trap is if I, that, that's, that's a kind of, um, you know, uh, unartful if I just help them as that category, that, that model, and I need to be able to see them also completely uniquely individually uh, and um, right. in a, in a living way, you know, like, yeah. so they're not reified in my mind and then I'm now relating to them through that model, but they're an alive being that can continue to uh, speak to me in a very different way once they're, you know, that I'm not that reified thing in my head. That's super beautifully said. I, I love the way you articulated that. Yeah. Right. Cool. Which is basically like, may, may I speak about this a little bit more? Please. The, I'm a big proponent, you know, we, you asked me about lenses first, and I, I wanted to start off with talking about somatic intuition because I do really think that without having that there, you're, uh, I mean, there's not only massive opportunity costs, but there's huge risk. Like without, without grounding things in an awareness of two bodies, coaching gets really off the rails. It can get super, super lost. Mm -hmm. um, but with that foundation, you can, I do believe it's, there are some amazing coaches who rely almost exclusively on that. Mm, on just, uh, the, in the, the, the somatic side. Or somatic the, side. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. The somatic side. Just, yeah. it's possible to have beautiful coaching that's pretty much just that. I, I also think that thinking is incredibly useful. Right. But really dangerous. And so, so when it comes to like incorporating thinking into coaching and also helping to coach people's thought process mm. that there's kind of two very important things. One is cultivating the habit of not thinking as the foundation, like really building a foundation of simple presence that's grounded in the body so that you can't get too lost in the thought. And then for the thinking itself to have it be not a static process or like not a, have it not be based in just a juggling of accidentally acquired dogmas mm. um, or just the kind of, you know, ruthless teardown of every possibly useful mental model, mm. but instead be uh, a kind of gently, deliberately forever forward alternating practice of these two things back and forth always. So there's always progress it can never get unbalanced mm. um, and it's grounded in, you know, so long as it's grounded in physical awareness, they can add enormous richness and usefulness to the coaching process. Mm. Yeah. That's beautiful. I, I just thought of like Kozybski who said like the map is not the territory. And, and um, I don't know if he said that, but he said something like that, but it's like, yeah, a lot of people throw out thinking. Yeah. Like it's rejecting thinking, but um is that really possible anyway? Is it possible to live without a kind of meaning making right. 
kind of um, mode happening in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, and I just forgot the other thing I was going to say. Oh yeah, like I wonder. I don't know. Like if there's a difference between a kind of unintegrated thinking um, or um, you know, like a thinking which might be um, purely rational. And then there's a kind of thinking which can be kind of like almost like wisdom or um, it's kind of more like a knowing, you know, like it's, it's connected to that, that embodied sense and maybe even emerging, like emerging out of the present moment. There's a, there's a way that I, with my own clients, I, I notice sometimes it's like they're in a kind of thinking, which is um, recursive and, right. um, um, reinforcing of maybe a certain orientation to life, which is coming from a sense of lack or problems to be solved. And then, and then they can drop into a place where by the, the knowing is very like, almost like a kind of gnosis. It's like, it's coming out of beingness. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a deep wisdom inside of it, you know, yeah. and a clarity, a sharp clarity. And often those sense of problems or, challenges have disappeared because they were from that other place and this yeah i don't know if that brings anything up maybe i'm jumping onto a different track but no i love i love the way you described that Mm. i love the way you described that Mm. so let me um we could ask we could talk about lenses um but i'm going to jump in a different direction and uh, we could come back to lenses but um, what else moves you in your life? Like you said marriage, and I think that took us on a really beautiful uh, yeah. little exploration. I just wonder what else m- moves you in your life, maybe informs your coaching, but let's just keep it to your life. Yeah, yeah, gladly. Mar- marriage, certainly. Um, I've already mentioned also ancient wisdom texts, mm. very much deeply passionate in terms of uh, you know, I don't have a lot of things that I know for certain are going to be lifelong practices for me and commitments, but my marriage is one of them. And my relationship to ancient Greek books is another. Mm. It's been very, very central for me in terms of, uh, you know, providing a well to draw wisdom up from, as well as a particular kind of mental training as well as as well as a simple kind of uh, of relational practice, in a way, you know, I consider reading books is is kind of uh, is one of the primary ways that we have of of relating to staying in relationship with the dead. Mm. And there are some amazing dead people. There are some amazing dead people. It's just it's a profound gift to get to be in relationship with. And some of them happen to have left behind books that they constructed specifically in order to allow people to be in ongoing relationship with them Mm. forever. Like, you know, stored the skeletons of their souls in these things. And uh, I consider that to be an incredible resource um, that I'm a, I I love books. I love, I, I read you know, these days, a good number of contemporary books, though for a long time I didn't. That was just like pretty much exclusively the ancient Greek stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of modern books. I like buying lots of books. But at the same time, there's like a, there's a reverence for what a book means 
mm. is very, very easy to lose in the kind of like mass produced landscape that we're in. Books used to be these, like, inc- I mean, not only did you need to get trained for a really long time in order to understand them, you know, prior to literacy being common, um, but it was incredibly hard to make. They're very, very valuable possessions. Mm. It's like a really big deal to have a book. It's fragile. It needs to be recreated over these beautiful works of art. It's a precious, special thing to have someone's soul stored like that. So that's that's a big part of my life is like doing, you know, engaging in an ongoing kind of reverent relationship with a couple of books that I, I believe to be like true, true treasures. Which would you be willing to name any books that in particular that are treasures to you? Yeah, gladly. So the the one author is front and center for me. It's kind of like my my number one go to. His name is Xenophon. Mm. He was one of Socrates' two primary students. The other one being Plato. And Xenophon's entire corpus, I consider to be treasures. He did a, mm. a really he completed his works. Um, it seems like prior to his death, sort of like Plato. It's like a complete coherent Mm. set of works. Uh, And so, you know, unlike Aristotle, where it's kind of like a smattering of uh, different fragments, basically, Mm. we like don't have the whole thing. So here's an actual person. They've stored themselves here. This is everything that they considered to be. It is truly like a microcosm of how they saw the world. Mm. And that, that's a very, very special thing. So Xenophon is front and center. And then second, second for me is actually Plato. Mm. Kind of ardent devotee of the Socratic tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like the, like I, when you talk about reverence, it's like, I, I get, I imagine there's a way, there's something that you get from reading those works that's transformational or, or, like there's a sense of that or you being in relationship with that author, like almost like a transmission that they've left within their works in a way that that touches you and then ripples out into the relationships you have with people, your wife, right. your, your um, clients. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a beautiful kind of picture. And I, I wonder, you know, um, what the core teaching would be from, how do you say his name again? Um, Xenophon. Xenophon. Yeah. Like his, you know, yeah. <laughs> what Xenophon's core teaching would be? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know he's, again, he sounds like he's left a real expansive mm-hmm. set of work. It's a really big question. I would say one of, one of the reasons why I have so much respect for this author in particular uh, is that he essentially rewards his readers in direct proportion to the amount of work that they put in. Mm. So it's very possible he does have a kind of central teaching, but he's not the kind of author who says, my central teaching is this. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I, it just made me think of Lectus Divinus, you know, like the Benedictine monks who um, had this practice of coming back to works and they would read, you know, 
in in different ways and the the works would reveal their deeper meanings and uh, even inspire them to go away and and create their own works from from reading those works and um, they're the reason why we have Xenophon right actually they they were lovers of Xenophon and engaged in that practice with Xenophon and so copied Xenophon and so the reason we have manuscripts is because of the monks beautiful beautiful there's a kind of um, perhaps a deeper sensing going on there of these connections yeah that's coming through our, our conversation um, well we've got like nine minutes and I know I've got to let you go and I, I'm like okay there's like about 16 things that could it's <laughs> <laughs> just not going to work so I know um, we're going to have to set up another call also yeah. where I can ask you some more questions I'm super curious about some more yeah. of the landscape of the training work that you're helping to set up and we'd yeah. love to jam further. Yeah. Well, maybe I could ask like one more question and, yeah. and we could jam for a few more minutes. And um, yeah, I, I wonder. Hmm. So, so maybe the, the, the um, connection between meditation, coaching and business sure. Um Let's go there. I mean, I'm, I think we could talk about that for, for a long time, but perhaps it's a way we, we tee up the next conversation, you know? Um, and so, I, like, I get the sense you've, you know something about the art of coaching business, and you've set your business up in a very particular way. And so what's my question here? I don't know. It's like... Um, what what's the first thing that comes up for you as I, as I put those together, like coaching a business and meditation, like where, where would we go in that conversation? Where would be the yeah. first place? Yeah. Certainly. That's a really huge question. I guess I'll try to tackle each of the pairs independent. So for the coaching and business overlap, I the first thing that comes to mind is I, I consider coaching to be sort of, like a, a super pure stripped down form of business mm. in a way, kind of the simplest form of business mm. in the, the basic shape of business is helping people to have or experience something they want or need in exchange for some form of wealth in exchange for something that's the shape of it. Coaching is fundamental, just talking to people in a way that helps them to being with people in a way that helps them to experience more of what they want or need. Mm. So it's spending your time very directly, just actually sitting with someone in order to achieve that aim rather than, for instance, uh, you know, farming or making crafts or providing more concrete products or more specific services. It's like the product is what the person wants. Mm. And the thing that the vehicle for that is being with. Mm. So coaching equals kind of distilled business in my eyes. Mm. In terms of coaching and meditation, the relationship, 
very multifaceted also, I think. But uh, the first thing that comes to mind is the uh, there are so many different types of meditative practice, but at the core of the bulk of the ones that I'm familiar with is a certain return to some particular mystery. Or at least the return of attention to something that over time we have the intention to reveal as a certain kind of mystery. And I believe that any, any really worthwhile coaching is grounded in the kind of fundamental attentional practice of focusing on a client um, either in a way that like, it reflects directly and immediately upon the mystery that is them, or that at least over time has the intention of unraveling that mystery. Mm. Cool. Um, for the, the relationship or the overlap between meditation and business, the, I think maybe the most obvious one is every great business person talks about the importance of gut decisions and meditation is kind of famous, famously the most successful vehicle for getting people to be able to access that particular type of knowing on a more consistent basis with more reliable on a more reliable basis. But I would say uh, in my eyes, the more important thing is most forms of at least sitting meditation practice involve the cultivation of two opposed abilities. One being focus or clarity which is a certain kind of wakefulness and energy. It's like the energy of caffeine. Caffeine and meditation are related. Mm. And then on the other side is deep relaxation, mm. complete relaxation or letting go, a widening, a periphering, uh, you know, an expansion outwards. Mm. Um, and those are opposites. And the cultivation of both is kind of central to most meditative practice, sitting meditative practices. Mm. Um, the practice of business is, in my eyes, is a form of the same thing. It is a combination of cultivating uh, a very, very deep, wakeful, forward momentum of focus, the way the caffeine provides, a crystal clarity, a contraction or a tunneling down to a single target and point and goal and aim. Like forward, smaller, clearer, distinct, one point. And at the same time, uh, a deep, deep relaxation into and kind of acceptance of the reality of whatever fluid circumstances are actually unfolding in the face of that focus. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. And there's a way that you're like folding these fields into one another and i feel the the kind of um synergy emerging now of where they're all kind of holographically reflected inside of each other and that um in some ways also i'm leaving with the sense of the mystery that we can that our clients are mysteries and that we can also evoke the mystery in our coaching conversations you know and that can be a place from with it with which the insights emerge you know 
there can be like a kind of dialectic relationship perhaps with the mystery you know and 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 ourselves and what we know and um yeah I, i'm sort of sat here with this sense of like oh if i had been in northern california and spent six hours you know walking around having these conversations that perhaps that wouldn't have been enough you know so this just feels like we're just starting to open up um some really I, I i've just been fascinated and really enjoyed this conversation dave that's what i want to say really i really appreciate this and super yeah. mutual super mutual I've, I've loved i i wish you know i look forward to the opportunity to get into a context where it's more appropriate for me to ask you questions yeah <laughs> and uh and it's been it's been a huge pleasure i love the way that you've reflected back that last piece and have reformulated and your way of of speaking and of being are both deeply impactful and quite enjoyable. Very grateful to have gotten to be here. Yeah. Great. We'll, we'll be well. And then until we meet again, yeah. I look forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for listening. If you're not on our mailing list, you can join it by heading to coachesrising.com. And you'll stay in the loop about other things we create that don't appear on this podcast. And again, if you feel like sharing this podcast, I'd appreciate that. You can do so by heading to coachesrising.com forward slash podcast. You'll find it there, the individual podcast page. Scroll down, click on the share button. And that's it. We'll be back soon with some more cool guests. We've got some really exciting guests lining up. So until that moment, be well.